0: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number Store or sleepnumber.com.
1: Hello. My name is Tony, and I'm an alcoholic. On Tuesday the 25th November 2003, 52-year-old Anthony John Hardy pleaded guilty to the brutal murders of Sally Rose White, Elizabeth Selina Vallad and Bridget Cathy McClellan, three sex workers whose only connection was the money they needed for the drugs that they used. The barbaric nature of their deaths, the disposal of their bodies and the sadistic callousness with which he abused their corpses, shocked a nation to its very core, and in an instant this anonymous nobody gained infamy being dubbed the Camden Ripper. But as fast as he became famous, he was forgotten. It seems strange that so little is written about him, but then again very little is known, as although he craved the cruel limelight, which his infamous hero once courted. He could be as cheery and chatty as any civilized member of society one minute, and a blank, expressionless wall of nothingness the next. Giving nothing to the police, no comment. The lawyers, no comment. Or the psychiatrists, no comment. The truth about the Camden Ripper may never be known, as the details are vague, the timings may be sketchy, and even the most solid pieces of evidence. Only led to the best guesses by experts. So it's hard to understand who he is, as he appeared to be a different person to different people at different times. But by viewing this story from his perspective, it is clear that there were four distinct sides to the personality of Anthony Hardy the alcoholic, the addict, the sadist, and the maniac. These are the four faces of the Camden Ripper. Part one, Tony the alcoholic. Over the last decade or so, I've been prone to binge drinking. Cider, wine, vodka, you name it. Although I wouldn't really call myself an addict. It's a crutch I use for when I'm low. That night, i drunk till I could drink no more. I'd filled the fridge beforehand to make sure it was properly stocked. But I don't know how much I drank. I blacked out. All I'll remember after that is being in a police cell. Saturday the 19th of January 2002. The date is correct. The time is unspecified, but it's definitely late. An Anthony Hardy, known as Tony, is standing in the borough of Camden near King's Cross station. A ceaseless cesspool of sin, bathed in the sickening neon glow of takeaways, taxi ranks, arcades, bars, B&Bs, and the dull red glow of sleazy brothels. It's a transient place where the sensible get out as quick as they get in. But the desperate get stuck as the lost allured by the promise of sex, drugs and drink. To some, it's terrifying. But for Tony, each and every street has been his home for the last 12 years, whether under a roof, a doorway or a cardboard box. But now he's doing okay. Not great, just okay. Standing an impressive 6 foot and 1 inch tall and 19 stone, Although larger than most, he's often mistaken for being bigger than he actually is, owing to his bold persona, his big bushy grey beard, and the massive dark thick layers which he wears to keep out the incessant drizzle and biting winter wind. Dressed from head to toe in black, from his NY baseball cap to his shin length coat, the only flashes of colour are his white smile, his gaudy Hawaiian shirt, and a set of amusing cartoon socks. And although he stands out, he also blends in. As formerly being a man of no fixed abode, he's used to being a nobody to the average person, who only ever converses with the police and social services. Far from being the man he used to be, educated, married, skilled, and employed, over the last two years, he's tried to turn his life around even going so far as to get his own council flat just a few roads away. But every day has been a daily struggle. And only being six days out of detox, he's relapsed again. He isn't staggering or slurring, as being intoxicated is his normal. So clutching a bag of booze and being single, like most knights, he's here in the seedy recesses of King's Cross, looking for sex. Tony's story is a tragically familiar one for many of the lost souls living on London streets. And that night, like any other, he was unable to think of anything else but fueling his addictions. Summer, 1989 Josiah Forty a thinner, less gray Tony, drove a slightly battered Ford Sierra through the back streets of the city. Just out of a Norwich prison, on his second stint for reckless driving, criminal damage and being drunken disorderly, although disqualified, he used illegal minicabbing to pay his way. Over the last decade, the life of this husband father of four, a middle-class engineer, had collapsed. Being little more than a washed-up ex-con who lived in a cheap squalid bedsit, being divorced, depressed, and separated from his teenage kids, he drank heavily and lost what little he still had. His first 25 years started well enough, but growing increasingly restless, agitated, and angry, Tony was hospitalized for 10 days in April 1982 at the Park Centre, a psychiatric facility in Brisbane, where he was diagnosed with depression, marked by violent outbursts, and exacerbated by drinking. From that day onwards, Tony became a familiar face in London's detox centres, help groups, homeless hostels, and psychiatric wards, where he was diagnosed with manic depression for which he was prescribed lithium but he also self-medicated with alcoholic binges and cannabis drinking up to 6 liters of frosty jack cider a day being a big man sometimes the booze just dulled the edges of his anxiety and other times he drank until he blacked out in 1992 given his size and alcohol intake Tony was diagnosed with diabetes. His mobility worsened, his weight increased, and it drastically lessened his sexual function, but not his libido. That same year, his younger brother Barry took his own life, and Tony hit rock bottom, and his life got worse. Evicted from a series of hostels for assaults on its residents and staff, and having been booted out of the Arlington House Hotel by a court of law, Tony found a bed in the Ferndale Hotel, a homeless refuge at 41 Argyle Square in Kings Cross. But by then, his mental health had severely deteriorated. On the 30th of April 1995, gripped by the delusion that he was a wanted killer and seeing a police van parked outside his window, Tony dived into the back and insisted on being arrested for his crimes. Seen by the duty psychiatrist at University College Hospital, he said he was hearing voices and a urine test concluded that he was in the midst of a drug-induced psychosis. It was a major psychotic episode, but his mental collapse would get him the help that he so badly needed. From the 2nd to the 5th of May, 1995, Tony was a voluntary inpatient at the Huntley Center at St Pancras Hospital, where he was assessed, diagnosed, medicated, and assigned a care worker from the focus team, who helped him to register with a GP, find support groups, and assisted with temporary accommodation so his life could return to some kind of normality. But the next four years would be even tougher Evicted from the Ferndale Hotel on the 30th of August, 1995, Tony took an overdose and was sectioned under the Mental Health Act. On the 3rd of October, being arrested for public indecency, Tony was sectioned again and readmitted to the Huntley Center, this time for three months spent on the Mornington unit. During his hospitalization, he was arrested twice for drunkenness and criminal damage to the ward. During Tony's stay, a psychiatrist with the North London Forensic Service wrote two reports about his alcohol abuse, stating, Tony uses alcohol when feeling depressed and to cope with life stresses. It does not always indicate early signs of a manic episode. Only Tony had many outlets for his anger. One was alcohol, one was cannabis, and the other was sex. Diagnosed as bipolar in January 1996, Tony was given a long-term bed at Argyle Walk, a hostel for the homeless with mental health needs, where he stayed until May 1997, when the focus team secured him a supportive living space at 34 King's Terrace. Unlike a hostel, King's Terrace was a self-contained flat which offered him better support, but greater independence. And having stability, he flourished. His care worker stated, there have been no episodes of psychosis or hospitalization. His mood has remained fairly consistent, if somewhat subdued. He's doing his own shopping, cooking, and is keeping himself active to minimize isolation. Mr. Hardy's stability at Argyle Walk cannot be overstated. But his alcoholism and mental health would always be a struggle and feeling that his life lacked independence on the 10th of may 1998 he was arrested for assault sectioned and on the 6th of august that very same year he was sectioned again and hospitalized in the cardigan ward at st luke's psychiatric hospital it was a blip in his recovery but with a renewed focus to get a home of his own. Across the next year, he fought to turn his life around. On the 3rd of June, 1999, Camden Council offered him a flat. And on the 20th of January, 2000, Tony Hardy became the legal tenant of Four Heartland in Camden. To Anthony Hardy, This was his home, but to his three victims, it would become a house of horrors. Heartland was a brown brick and white-walled four-storey council block on the College Place estate, bordered by College Place, Plender Street, and a short walk from the canal and King's Cross. Cheaply constructed in pre-assembled concrete shells, and connected by several stairwells. They're simple, affordable, and to the left of the ground-floor stairwell, behind a black front door, sat flat number four. Kept in an orderly state of disarray, it was neither filthy nor stylish, as everything was basic, practical, and had its own place. Up front was a multicoloured living room, dominated by a blue sofa, three tellies, A pile of true crime books, a coffee table with a neat stack of VHS tapes, and a few feet behind sat his double bed. He had a small grubby kitchen, a grimy little bathroom, and a spare room filled with some furniture should he ever have a friend over to stay, as well as his photographic equipment and his junk. Decorated using a misjudged mix of garish colours and marker pens, almost every wall, ceiling and door was covered in an ad-hoc array of indecipherable art by Tony. But they weren't the intricate designs of a skilled engineer, but the doodles of a childlike mind. As if to keep his bad thoughts at bay, the walls were a brightly coloured mural of love, happiness and spirituality, consisting of everything, from fishes, pets, faces, names, seas and stars, to Celtic crosses. It was like a daily reminder to be happy. On the 7th of August 2001, a full assessment was undertaken, and although alcohol was his main risk, he had joined an art class, a support group, he had cut down his drinking to just two pints a day, he maintained a ten-year relationship with his good friend Maureen Reeves, who he would regularly meet with for a cup of tea as she listened to his fascinating theories about the infamous serial killer Jack the Ripper. And by September, his care worker had stated that he was being effectively managed in the community. Within his bubble, he was blossoming, but out on the estate, he was struggling. Seen as a bit of a weirdo who dressed in black, muttered to himself and only ever socialized with sex workers. After a decade living on the streets, he was unused to dealing with the simple everyday problems of life. In November 2001, with his neighbor's bath in the upstairs flat leaking down into his, unable to even discuss it with her, he got anxious, depressed and proceeded to binge drink. And although he couldn't recall his actions, Owing to an alcoholic blackout, he bent her car's windscreen wipers and slashed her tyres. The problem was finally resolved, and the leak was fixed. But for the weeks afterwards, he seethed. On the 7th of January 2002, Tony voluntarily entered Rugby House, an alcoholic detox clinic in Bermondsey by London Bridge Station. But unable to quit his main addiction, he discharged himself just six days later. By Saturday the 19th of January, just shy of midnight, he was standing in King's Cross station. That night, i drunk till I could drink no more. I'd filled the fridge beforehand to make sure it was properly stocked. But I don't know how much I drank I blacked out. All I'll remember after that is being in a police cell. With a bag of booze in his hand and his flat a few streets away, focused only on fueling his addictions, Tony needed sex. And the girl he chose was Sally. Born on the 23rd of September 1963, Sally Rose White was the youngest daughter of Arthur and Muriel, a loving couple who strived to give her all of the support she needed, having been born with brain damage. Educated at a special needs school, although a struggle, Sally had an idyllic upbringing, being raised by the key in the coastal town of Poole in Dorset, where she thrived, ...and got a job as a shop assistant. But as she entered her 20s, being little more than a child in an adult's body... ...whose independence was limited to protect her, she became aggressive, repeatedly ran away from home and slept rough. In 1991, aged 28, Sally gave birth to a daughter called Louise, but unable to care for her baby... She was given up for adoption. Relenting to her request to live her life as she wanted, Sally moved to London as her worried parents supported her from a distance. But having refused their help, she began to struggle. She lost her job, her flat, and becoming homeless, she funded her crack addiction with sex work. As a sweet, naive and easily led girl, she had no idea how vulnerable she was, being just an innocent little fish who swam in a dark turbulent sea of hungry sharks. In her final months, her father often scoured the many homeless hostels of London, seeking to bring his baby home, but Sally always refused. On the cold, wet morning of Saturday the 19th of January 2002, being a little dot with a sweet smile, twinkly brown eyes and jet black hair, wearing blue jeans, a blue jacket and a grey hoodie, 38-year-old Sally was last seen at the Manor Centre in Melia Street in Bermondsey, a charity by London Bridge Station which provides food, beds and support for the city's most vulnerable. Like so many, Sally was a familiar face. As was Tony, who just six days earlier had discharged himself from detox just one street away. Whether he knew her from the hostels, whether they first met that day, or whether he had picked her up in King's Cross as one of hundreds of sex workers he had procured across his life is unknown. All we know is that they were both vulnerable, needy, and desperate. For both, this seemed like a win-win situation, as she was sweet and petite, and he was charming and fatherly. So just shy of midnight, clutching a bag of booze, they both walked back to his warm cosy flat, to feed their addictions. It was an ordinary night, as inside the brightly coloured living room at Four Heartland, Sally sat alongside Tony on the blue sofa, where they supped cheap wine, chatted about true crime, got warm, ate and had a bit of a giggle. Later, as his diabetes made sex a little unpredictable, Tony popped a porno in his VHS player and when that familiar feeling stirred in his loins, he led Sally to bed. Not his bed behind the sofa, as this was his private space, and he hated messing up his neat blue bedsheets, his stack of medications and his Space Invaders t-shirt drying on the radiator. So instead, he led her to the spare room. Having folded her jacket and jeans neatly on the floor, dressed in just a bra, pants and hoodie, Sally lay on the bed. Bearing down on top of this small nine-stone girl was the towering naked bulk of a 19-stone man, with six litres of cider inside him, a temperamental erection and a thirst for rough sex. At 4am, a a neighbour later stated that they heard a scream, but that could have been anything. The next morning, although the little issue of his neighbour's leaky bath had been resolved back in December, Tony was still fuming. Having previously snapped her wipers, slashed her tyres, and sent her an abusive letter after she found him rummaging through her bins, none of which he could recall, being openly hostile and unable to confront her, as she slept, he vandalized her front door. At 6:40 a.m. on Sunday the 20th of January 2002, alerted by the neighbour, Sergeant Nick Spinks arrived at the first floor flat at 10 Heartland. The damage was obvious. With a plastic cider bottle, a litre of sulphuric acid from an abandoned car battery had been poured through a letterbox. Across the white door, in black paint, were sprayed the words, Fuck you, slut, you're a cunt. And as if there was no denying who had done this cowardly petulant deed, the culprit had signed it with the letter T, and as the bubbling acid pulled at the base of the door, the prints of his size 11 trainers led from her door to his. Tony was not happy to see the officers, and although he smelt of drink, not being intoxicated, he fully admitted to the charge of criminal damage and asked to be escorted to the police station. Finding his enthusiasm to be detained elsewhere a little suspicious, with Tony's consent they searched his flat. They found the cider bottle, the funnel and a can of black spray paint. Every room was checked except for the spare room, which Tony stated was sublet to a lady and he didn't have the key. Have the key. So with him being calm and fully compliant, he was arrested for the minor offence of criminal damage. Before being led outside into the freezing cold morning, sensibly, Tony asked if he could pop on a coat and removing the anorak which hung on the back of his door, the officer searched it first. In the lining, he found a key. The key fitted the locked door. And suddenly, Tony began to sweat as they entered the spare room. With the window locked from the inside, the police knew that no one had entered or exited that room since they had arrived. To the side of the wardrobe, a set of folded clothes had been stashed, On the floor lay a grey hoodie, and tossed on the red rug, a pair of brown pants had been cut into pieces. The room was messy and cluttered, but no more than the rest of the flat, and nothing looked damaged or broken. Above the pillow, a circle of blood marked the point where a head had impacted with the white wall, and leading down to the bed, a dark-haired lady silently lay. Being naked and lying spread eagle, with her legs splayed wide, she was still warm to the touch, and although a blue towel masked her face, with her skin pale, her cheeks mottled, and her lips a bluish hue, it was clear that Sally was dead. Inside her grey hoodie, A sticky mess matched the mass of matted hair on her head's bloody crown. And besides a few bruises, the only other injury was a bite mark to the inside of her right thigh, which matched Tony's teeth. By the bed, he had placed a bucket of warm soapy water and a yellow sponge. As being disturbed by the police, perhaps out of panic, Tony had tried to cover up this accident. Trembling and pale, Tony was arrested for criminal damage, suspicion of murder, and taken to Kentish Town Police Station. As was his right, he replied, no comment, to every question, had no recollection of the incident, and he made the officers aware of his alcoholism, diabetes, and mental health issues. For the detectives... It seemed like a pretty solid case of murder or manslaughter, with Tony as the only suspect. He had concealed the body, lied about the key, attempted a clean-up, and the only DNA or fingerprints other than hers, which was found at the scene, was his. He had a history of alcoholism, psychosis, delusions, and violence. And all of his neighbours described him as a nutter, a weirdo, and a loner. On the 22nd of January 2002, while on Romand pending his trial for murder, Tony was found guilty of criminal damage and assessed by the psychiatric diversion team at Highbury Corner Magistrates Court. Being described as downcast, depressed, and on the verge of tears, they confirmed that he was fit to stand trial, but stated, Mr. Hardy currently presents in a fragile state he's still suffering from alcohol withdrawal and depressive and suicidal thoughts, consequent to the situation which he finds himself in. Transferred to Pentonville Prison and put on suicide watch. On the 12th of January 2002, Tony was sectioned under the Mental Health Act and readmitted to the Mornington Psychiatric Unit at the Huntley Centre. But for the police, having completed a thorough investigation, this murder case was a done deal. Or at least, it should have been. On the 15th of April 2002, at St Pancras Coroner's Court, the Home Office pathologist Dr. Freddie Patel gave his findings. The autopsy found no evidence of poisoning or assault. The bite mark, bruising and abrasions to her skin were not regarded as marks of violence. And although her head wound was consistent with a blunt impact with a broad hard surface like a wall, having possibly occurred owing to a stumble or collapse, the wound had not caused her death. Born with a defective heart, Dr. Patel stated, that her cardiovascular system showed a severe coronary atheroma with a 40-60% to 60% occlusion in the proximal anterior branch. In short, she had died of heart failure during rough sex. Listed as death by natural causes, the coroner concluded that the police have conducted an investigation and although it is obvious that Mr Hardy is in need of psychiatric treatment, There is no evidence to suggest that he was responsible for the death of Sally Rose White. The trial took less than 15 minutes. The police were not asked to give evidence, and although they took a very rare step of requesting that a second autopsy be conducted, Dr. Freddie Patel returned with the same conclusion, heart failure. The murder case collapsed, the charges were dropped, and although he had been committed to a psychiatric unit, Anthony John Hardy was cleared of murder. The truth about the Camden Ripper may never be known, and it's hard to understand who he is, as he appeared to be a different person to different people at different times. But by viewing the story from his perspective, it was clear that there were four distinct sides to the personality of Anthony Hardy. The alcoholic, the addict, the sadist and the maniac. Out, We had some sex, some bondage, some rough stuff. But with me on top, she must have suffocated under me on weight. On Sunday the 20th of January 2002, the body of 38-year-old sex worker Sally Rose White was discovered in the locked bedroom of Anthony Hardy's flat. Found naked... With her legs splayed, this petite lady had engaged in rough sex with this 19-stone man, which some light bruising, a bite mark and a wound to her head had proven. Deemed a natural death and an accident, a qualified pathologist confirmed that Sally had died of heart failure and thus Tony was not responsible for her death. With no witnesses, no murder weapon and no motive, as the police's prime suspect had no memory of that night owing to an alcoholic blackout. As was his legal right, he would state, no comment, to every question. And with a second autopsy returning the same conclusion, the murder case collapsed. Charged only with criminal damage to his neighbor's door, being assessed by several doctors as highly distressed and a suicide risk, As a long-term alcoholic with severe psychological needs, Tony was sectioned under the Mental Health Act for fear that he was a danger to himself. The truth about the Camden Ripper may never be known. As memories are vague, details were absent, and even the evidence by medical experts couldn't secure a conviction. And besides, it's hard to understand who he was, as he appeared to be a different person to different people at different times. But by viewing this story from his perspective, it's clear that there were four distinct sides to the personality of Anthony Hardy. The alcoholic, the addict, the sadist, and the maniac. These are the four faces of the Camden Ripper. Part 2. Tony the Addict That night, I'd been drinking a lot, as it was low. My neighbor's leaky tap had upset me greatly, but I've no ill feelings towards her now. It wasn't her, it was the drink. It makes the world a better place. People are friendly, it's worth being alive. Only I drink too much, and I black out. Had he been found guilty of murder, he could have faced 20 years in prison. Had he been declared a danger to the public, he might have been locked up in a psychiatric unit for life. But being found innocent by a noted pathologist and sectioned four times before, Tony knew that his hospitalization was dependent on his recovery, meaning that he could be held for either days, months or years. On the 8th of January 2002, Tony was returned to the Mornington unit at the Huntley Centre, an intensive care psychiatric facility within St Pancras Hospital, behind King's Cross Station and a few doors from his flat. Set within an old Victorian hospital, this secure unit had all the essentials to keep the patients within, like cameras, alarms, locks, and every exit secured by a series of thick metal doors. With soft lighting, bright walls, soft sofas, and a large telly, it was a far cry from the old asylums, with its aim to reflect a more positive and happier mental state. Held under Section 37 of the Mental Health Act, a court order made following his criminal conviction for the damage to his neighbor's front door, this meant that unlike a prison sentence, the length of his stay and the date of his discharge wasn't decided by a judge, but by the hospital. Previously deemed a suicide risk by a panel of experts, upon his release from Penterville Prison to the Mornington Unit, Tony said that he was feeling fine and had no thoughts of self-harm or harm to others. The staff were right to be wary of this six-foot-one, 19-stone hulk, with a history of assault, abuse, sexual deviance and drunkenness, having been arrested twice prior on that very ward. Only he seemed a different man now, with a psychiatrist later noting, Mr Hardy, Mr. Hardy seemed stable throughout his admission, with no evidence of mental illness. He was granted escorted leave and spent a lot of time in bed and watching television on his discharge summary it even recorded that mr hardy's suicidal thoughts had stopped when he knew he was moving to a hospital listed as not an immediate risk to himself on the 29th of april 2002 he was transferred to the cardigan ward an acute mental illness ward at St Luke's Hospital in Muswell Hill with a diagnosis of bipolar disorder exacerbated by alcohol. On his first day, given that his illness and addiction were both treatable, he appealed his section order asking that he be discharged from hospital, but his request was denied. Fully accepting their decision, once again Tony became a model patient. His mood was lucid and calm. He had no delusions or mania. His mood swings were treated with lithium. His daily dosage of chlorpromazine and antipsychotic medication was reduced. And he had a good understanding of bipolar disorder. He was quiet, polite, and attended his therapy sessions and alcohol recovery program. As a long-term alcoholic, who abused booze when his mood was low. He had at least 13 relapses during his stay at St. Luke's. Granted unescorted leave owing to good behavior, this gave him a few hours to attend his appointments with the alcohol advisory service, to shop for essentials, and to visit his flat at Fort Heartland. As the police had returned, some of the items removed pending the ill-fated murder trial. Like many alcoholics, given a little bit of freedom from this strict regime, he lied about his movements, he hid alcohol in his room, and sometimes he returned to the ward still drunk. When he was bad, his leave was stopped, and when he was good, it was reinstated. Apart from that, he showed no signs of mania or psychosis. Even Tony later admitted, Over the last decade or so, I've been prone to binge drinking, although I wouldn't really call myself an addict. It's a crutch I use for when I'm low." And the hospital agreed. Only Tony's little show had left many people with an uneasy feeling. A social worker stated, I had the impression that Mr. Hardy would tell me what he thought I wanted to hear, that he would give me the information about his drinking that would improve his chances of being released from his section. Doctors at the Mornington Unit had also expressed their concerns prior to his transfer, saying, when talking to him about the events surrounding his arrest, there was a severe lack of empathy and a strong sense that he was not telling the truth. But more than that, he knew that we knew he was not telling the truth. I don't say necessarily that he was enjoying it, or that he was manipulating us, but that is very unusual. Some staff even reported that they found him to be a creep, with a vague sense of evil. Also, his failure to recall a single detail of Sally's death, was itself questionable. Throughout his life, he had blamed his violent outbursts on alcoholic blackouts. I drunk till I could drink no more. I blacked out. All I remember is being in the police cell. Only officers confirmed that when Tony was arrested, he smelt of drink, but he wasn't drunk. And the psychiatrists were equally skeptical. The acid and paint used to deface his neighbor's door showed premeditation. As did the bucket of warm soapy water, the key he had hidden, and the posing of Sally's body. A psychiatrist later stated, "When I think of it, every time he did something bad, he had an alcoholic blackout and could never remember doing anything." On the 20th of June 2002, six months after his arrest, a meeting was held to discuss his section discharge. It was denied, as the doctors felt his mental illness still required treatment, and the community's services were not fully in place to help him cope with his alcohol addiction. In short, the risk of relapse, leading to a failure to take his medication, is too great in terms of a risk to himself and others, given his history. Only the more he relapsed, the more those treating him were convinced that alcohol was the problem, when in fact he was hiding the truth. His real addiction, which was never diagnosed or treated, was sex. Since the 1970s, As with alcohol, sex was vital to keep his mood in check. But in 1992, being diagnosed with diabetes, this disorder had left him with severe erectile dysfunction. A psychiatrist later stated, his distress, anger and frustration at his diminished sexual prowess was expressed in sadistic sexual activity, his intoxication with alcohol and his rage at his sexual dysfunction induced by diabetes. Whilst held at the cardigan ward at St. Luke's, he fought to keep his sexual impulses under wraps, but sometimes they came out. In an arts therapy workshop, a female facilitator touched a glass jar which he had painted with the words Sally Rose White, R.I.P., She apologised for leaving fingerprints on his artwork, at which he grinned and said, It's okay. When I'm in the bath, it'll remind me of you. During his decade as a homeless man, Tony was evicted from countless hostels, not only owing to his drunkenness, theft and assaults, but when he was manic, he became sexually aroused and uninhibited. Often stripping naked, groping residential staff, and suggesting that they make a porno together. All of which he would deny had ever taken place, blaming the incidents on hijinks and alcoholic blackouts. On the 24th of April 1998, at Kings Cross Station, he was arrested on suspicion of rape. Accompanying an 18 year old sex worker back to his flat at Kings Terrace, There they got drunk, stoned, and while she was intoxicated, he inserted his fingers inside her. Unable to disprove her consent, he pleaded guilty to the lesser charge of indecent assault, but the police file shows that he was a suspect in three more rapes. Having coerced his care workers into believing that his independence was key to his mental stability, given his own flat at Four heartland. In the privacy of his spare room, Tony indulged his six sexual cravings, whether domination, bondage, strangulation, or posing semi-conscious girls on the bed and shooting obscene images with his black shin on camera. In December 2002, having met a masseuse through a contact ad, at her home, he raped her taking sadistic sexual satisfaction in crushing her with his 19-stone bulk. She later stated, I I couldn't speak. I couldn't breathe. It was like he was pushing me down onto the bed. His face was pressed to mine. His chest was up to my neck, and my head was forced back. He got a kick, knowing that I couldn't breathe. Pathologists call this, homicidal asphyxiation as it stops the blood circulating, causing dizziness, a lack of consciousness, and finally death, which could easily be mistaken for a heart attack during rough sex. Unaware of his suppressed sexual sadism, seeking to remedy his bipolar and alcoholism as the sodium valparate was causing him impotence, the doctors prescribed him apomorphine, a precursor to Viagra. On the 14th of November 2002, a meeting was held by his psychiatrist, a ward doctor, a care worker, a social worker and Camden Housing Department, as well as Tony's lawyers, to discuss his section order, being described as calm and cooperative. They decided to treat Tony as an outpatient, as he seemed to be dealing with his alcohol problem. The next day, he packed his bags and was discharged from hospital. A report by three psychiatrists with the North London Forensic Service was sent ahead of the meeting. But being misplaced in the mailroom, it arrived two days In it, they express their concerns stating Mr. Hardy Hardy poses a risk of violent behavior, even when his illness is controlled and when not intoxicated with alcohol, and that he should not return to his previous address, owing to the extremely suspicious circumstances surrounding his arrest. A doctor at St. Luke's also gave six warnings that Anthony Hardy should not be released. Stating, he was vulnerable to relapse and he is a danger to women. The report concluded Mr. Hardy has an untreatable personality disorder. There is a strong risk of reoffending and he is likely to cause serious physical or psychological harm to others. The report was right. Whilst on day release for good behavior, The hospital was unaware that he had taken a train out of London, raped a sex worker, and he was back on the cardigan ward before his curfew was up. On the 15th of November 2002, Tony returned to his flat at Four Heartland. As a stipulation of his discharge, he attended his therapy sessions, alcohol program, and collected his medication. He kept himself to himself. ...and had no further incidents with his upstairs neighbour. With his life back to normal, he bought booze from the off-licence on Plender Street... ...had a few pints at the College Arms pub... ...picked up sex workers at King's Cross Station... ...and chatted with Maureen about how skillfully the Whitechapel murderer had evaded justice. Released back into the community and being supervised from a distance... Several agencies oversaw his return, but no one was wholly responsible for his day-to-day living but Tony. As long as he turned up to his therapy sessions and didn't look drunk, he was left to his own devices. Going from a model inpatient to a model outpatient, Tony took his cocktail of seven different pills for his diabetes, his mobility, He's bipolar, and he was still self-medicating with large quantities of alcohol and cannabis. But he was on no form of prescribed medication to control his rampant sexual urges. In fact, it was the opposite. Prescribed apomorphine to combat his erectile dysfunction, having collected his carefully managed dose every Friday from St. Luke's, He secretly secured a second supply from University College Hospital. His libido was in overload, having been bottled up inside a prison and two psychiatric wards for almost a year. But now, being free to roam at will, and aided by a double dose of pills to stiffen his stuttering prick, Tony's sexual desires ran rampant as he trawled the back streets of Camden looking for ladies, easily blowing his disability allowance in brothels. For cheap thrills, he snapped covert photos of sexy ladies walking alone, and he was spotted licking the sofa in a local bar and cooing, I like this leather. At home, luring back sex workers with the promise of money and drugs, his perverted sexual needs got even rougher, harder, and riskier, as on his telly, he played sickening porn of simulated and real rapes. In mid-December, he travelled to the Midlands to see a masseuse called Sarah. He raped her. She later said, He was crushing me, stopping me from breathing. His chest was pushing down on me. He was getting off on the fact that he was trying to kill me and at the point of ejaculation, his eyes were like something I cannot describe. I knew that if I didn't move that second, I would be dead. And as if to relive this sick moment every time that he bathed or showered, above his bathroom sink, in a childishly bright and cheerily orange daubing with blood-red writing, he had immortalized her name, Sarah. And once again, he had returned to his original plan from one year ago. As with his bed in the living room of this small, sparse flat, he advertised in a local newsagent Spare room for rent, female lodger only. On Thursday, the 19th of December 2002, 11 months to the day, after he had led Sally Rose White from Kings Cross Station back to his flat at Heartland, Tony would meet another sex worker, and her name was Liz. Elizabeth Selina Vallad, known as Liz, was born on the 28th of May 1973 to Hassan, an Iranian professor living in America, and her English born mother, Jackie. Sadly, their marriage was not to be, and after only two years, Jackie and Liz returned home to the market town of Arnold in Nottinghamshire. With a working parent, a nice little home, and her mum seeing a new partner called Peter, Liz had a good start in life. But she was as beautiful and talented as she was fiery and volatile. Whereas once she was a little girl who dreamed of living the high life in London's glittering West End, Marrying a rich man, staying in a penthouse, and attending posh parties dressed in silks, gems, and furs. As a teenager, her rebellious streak had led her to hang out with a bad crowd, all of which ended in truancy, trouble, and theft. Age 16 and unqualified, Liz left school and headed to London, telling her mother she was working as a secretary. In truth, she was a hostess in a massage parlour selling sex for £30 a go. Two years later, Liz met her meal ticket. A multi millionaire sugar daddy in his 70s who plucked her out of this seedy hellhole and set her up in an exclusive Chelsea flat with a Mercedes, a clothing allowance, dinner at the Ritz, and even a boob job. Learning the truth and fearing the worst. Jackie pleaded with her daughter to come home, but Liz was living the life she wanted to live, and across the 1990s, she believed that she would always be happy. What happened to her sugar daddy is unknown. But by the end of 2001, with no skills, no home, no job and no savings, as her glamorous life turned from disaster to disaster, by the bitter winter of 2002, 29 year old Elizabeth Selina Vallad was addicted to crack and feeding her addiction with sex work. On the night of Thursday, the 19th of December 2002, beside Kings Cross Station, feeling thirsty, Liz told her boyfriend Neville that she was popping to the newsagents. To buy herself a drink. She never got to the shop. She never bought a drink. She never returned to Neville. And she was never seen alive again. At an unspecified hour, just as Sally had, like a sinister rerun to mark this macabre little anniversary, Liz entered the flat of her own accord at Four Heartland, and as with both girls, neither was seen or heard. Coming in from the bitterly cold drizzle and biting cold wind, the warmth of the radiators must have felt soothing, and although his flat must have seemed a little odd, both girls had probably been to worse places. Besides, decorated with childlike art, a Womble's poster and his Christmas tree up. As this funny man with a bushy beard, a loud gaudy shirt, and a set of amusing socks exuded a fatherly air, there was no reason for fear as he offered Liz a drink, a smoke, some dope, and some quick cash for a good fuck. Tony and Liz were just two addicts fueling their needs. So for both, it was a win-win situation. Only, unlike one year earlier, with Sally being a simple girl who was naive and easily led, whereas she had willingly followed Tony into the spare room for consensual sex, Liz did not. Maybe the money wasn't enough. Maybe bondage wasn't her thing. Maybe the rape porn made her nervous. Or maybe, having knocked Sally unconscious during rough sex, rendering her perfectly submissive to his whims. This time, Tony didn't plan to make the same mistakes with such a fierce and fiery woman as Liz. Owing to the blood spatter, it was clear that Tony had smashed Liz hard across the head with a heavy blunt object. Slumping onto the sofa, he gripped her thin throat with his bare hands and strangled her until almost every ounce of life was lost dragging her limp but still living body into the spare room, on the same double bed where Sally had died. Liz was his to do with as he pleased. Binding her wrists and ankles tight, he climbed on top of this small slim lady as this 19-stone hulk crushed her under his bulk, trapping her blood and slowing her heart as he brutally raped her again and again. At some point during the assault, she died. But Tony didn't care, as to him, she meant nothing. Eleven months earlier, owing to his own impulsive fury over his neighbour's leaky tap, unwittingly, the police had disturbed his sick and twisted sexual act with Sally's still warm corpse. But having allegedly blacked out, he claimed he couldn't recall. Only now, thanks to a bit of luck, a bungling pathologist, and the manipulation of those there to protect him, Tony was free to finish what he had begun. Popping his black shin on stills camera on a sturdy tripod, Tony maneuvered the lifeless limbs of Liz's naked body in a series of lewd and disturbing poses with her legs splayed wide and topped off with a set of Mr. Men's socks on her feet. Ironically, the beaming yellow grin of Mr. Happy. Inside her gaping vagina, a six-inch rampant rabbit vibrator had been thrust, angling her neck with a pillow. As her head was cocked coyly towards the snapping camera, as if from the grave, she was lovingly enticing her lover to bed. Although she was a beautiful woman, He covered her face with his black NY baseball cap and in some photos, a devil's mask. To Tony, Liz was a nobody. It didn't matter who she was, as with her identity disguised, when he masturbated to the photos, this wantonly submissive woman who fulfilled his every fantasy could literally be anyone. Maybe even you. Instead of being in prison, every day that Tony was free to roam, he passed the Mornington unit, the police station and the coroner's court where so many mistakes had been made. And yet, with only one body in his flat, unlike his infamously sadistic hero, this rapist and murderer wasn't a real serial killer yet. But within days, Anthony John Hardy would earn his nickname as the Camden Ripper.
2: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At Nile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online.
1: I feel like I've wasted the last few years. I've wasted my whole life, and I've achieved nothing. To the world around him, by the winter of 2002, 51-year-old Anthony John Hardy was little more than a sexually defunct diabetic with bipolar disorder. He eked out a living on a disability allowance He had been bounced from hostels to hospitals to prisons. He was dependent on a cocktail of medications, drink and drugs. And the only relationships he maintained was with a series of anonymous sex workers. As a clinically depressed alcoholic, at best, his life would be an endless circle of therapy sessions, drug tests and relapses. At worst, he would sink into a pit of depression, arrests and homelessness. He was a nameless nobody who had achieved nothing. Only deep down in his sadistic little soul, Tony harboured a dark ambition. Feeling a supreme sense of superiority over the system he had manipulated and the experts he had duped. Having murdered his first victim, he had evaded justice and a lengthy prison sentence, receiving only a few months in hospital with his second lying dead in a spare room. His evil obsession was just days away from completion, and seeking a third victim, soon he would be as infamous as his hero. The truth about the Camden Ripper may never be known, as his memory and details were deliberately vague, and his many illnesses masked the sadistic truth. He was a different person to different people, at different times, for a very specific reason. And only by viewing his story from his perspective, is it possible to see the four sides of the personality of Anthony Hardy. The alcoholic, the addict, the sadist, and the maniac. These are the four faces of the Camden Ripper. Part 3. Tony the Sadist The last five years, I could have spent it in a job or training at college. Instead, I spent it drinking tea in day centres and alcohol on the streets. The therapy, the alcohol sessions and the counselling has helped. But with no fixed address, it's impossible to achieve any real goals. Tuesday, the 24th of December 2002. Christmas Eve. Not a flake of snow fell on the soggy, litter-strewn streets of Camden. Instead, a cold wet drizzle wafted the cheesy chirp of festive hits as it drifted on the breeze. From the window of his brightly coloured living room, the big bearded figure of Tony stared out onto Royal College Street, like a demented Santa Claus in a Hawaiian shirt and a set of Mr. Men's socks. With his tree up, his baubles dangling, and his Christmas cards hanging on a string, there was a real sense of excitement. For everyone, it was about Christmas. But for Tony, it was about infamy. Chosen by Camden Council simply because it was available and suited a single man. It's ironic that the flat that they chose it for, Heartland, would be so perfect for the sickening whims of a prospective serial killer. From outside, being situated on the ground floor of a council block, flat 4 had no immediate neighbours. Fully surrounded by a street, two stairwells and a passageway, it sat by itself, with a few frosted windows in the communal areas, a thick front door facing no others, and the four windows to his living room, bathroom and spare room were all set six feet off the ground. On the ground floor was a thin grey stairwell, illuminated by a single bulb which infrequently worked, and as it led to nowhere but other flats, unless you lived there, you had no reason to be there. As the only entrance or exit, opening the black front door, which had no glass pane, just a spy hole and a clumsily chalked four. Should anyone peep inside, they would see nothing but a thin, vague hallway. There were no carpets or furniture, just a few childish doorbings, and the flat fronts of four closed doors. To the left was a white windowless bathroom with a bath, a sink and a toilet. And nothing else but a nail brush, a mop, the name Sarah in red paint, and two self-shot snaps of semi-clad ladies sunning it up in the park. Second right was a small messy kitchen with a fridge, an electric hob, and some unwashed plates, which like all the other rooms, resembled the flat of a depressed alcoholic. So should the council inspect it, to the uninitiated, it needed a good clean and a paint job, but there would be nothing of concern to report. In the brightly coloured living room, besides the cheap Christmas tree and the string of greetings cards, you'd see a stack of books on Jack the Ripper, not an odd fixation with death. You'd see three tellies, not a shrine to hardcore porn. A line of blank VHS tapes, not hours of simulated and real rapes. And an assortment of sticky spillages from a clumsy alcoholic. And not the mopped up bloodstains of his last victim perhaps having rejected his generous offer of a spare room with sex as payment for the rent. Of course, the spare room was a perfect trap to lure in any vulnerable female lodger, as it was warm, dry and almost free. With a double bed, a locked door and a single window which opened a few inches, although silenced by brick walls on all four sides, The neighbours were used to the sounds of seedy sex coming from this room. And besides, the lodger wouldn't be left alone, as Tony had a spare key. Only now, that offer wouldn't be on the table, as although he had masked the ominous stench of putrid decay with an endless supply of incense, and her grey tracksuit bottoms blocked the base of the door, Liz's body remained five days dead, and slowly decomposing, she was his to do with as he pleased. A passive woman who would never say no, would never flee, and would never mock his unruly erections. On the surface, this was not a home of a crazed psychopath. This was just a stepping stone for one of the council's most in-need residents. Oddly, Although it was filled with art, the walls featured not a single image of nudity, sex, bondage or death. There was no cruelty, no blood and nothing unnerving. But under the childish veneer of fishes, rainbows and smiling faces, everything he painted was born out of a deeply personal frustration or a dark sadistic secret. Some were spiritual or religious symbols, such as moons, stars and Celtic crosses. Some were aspirational, such as a doodle of a waving Tony, cooing, Hey, little lady. Many were names, like Sarah, Sandra, Jane or Tracy, whereas others were only initials. But many were specific, as besides his bank of tellies was a painting of a lady's face, her nose replaced with a capital A, a single red tear pouring down her eye, and her look was unmistakably Sally. The flat was not only his home, it was a perfect place to undertake his sadistic crimes in absolute privacy. But should it be taken away and he be forced back into hostels, his dream of infamy would collapse. Released on the 14th of November 2002, Tony played the part of a typical, if flawed, outpatient perfectly. He attended his therapy sessions, but missed a few, as many alcoholics do. He was an active and well-behaved participant at the Diorama Art Group, and as requested, he enrolled in a photography and IT course at the Milton Skills Centre, with his plan to get himself a regular job. Or so he would say. Barely a month before Sally's death, Tony had taken the precautionary step to ensure that no one would unearth his dark ambition. In an unusual step, he requested that his weekly meetings with his care coordinator occur in a cafe around the corner, rather than in his flat. And given that she was female and he had a history of violent sexual assaults, it seemed a sensible measure for her safety as seen during his sectioning. His sadism could bubble to the surface at any point without warning. In 1992, Tony was once again evicted from the Arlington House hostel in Camden. Only then, it wasn't for his drunkenness, but for a particularly savage trick he had a cruel fondness for, which earned him the eerie nickname of the Bone Crusher. Creeping up behind a resident... He would trap them in a bear hug and squeeze them tight until they passed out, causing bruising, fractures and asphyxiation. Even back then, it was said that he got a kick out of stopping someone breathing. Tony's sexual sadism stemmed back to the 1970s with his increased need for sex workers. The more he used, the less his addiction was satisfied, and the rougher the sex he craved, all of which led to strangulation, manipulation, and the full physical and psychological control of another human being. Wary of his sadistic desires, many girls refused to see him again no matter how desperate they were, but many would later state that he would brag, You mark my words. One day, I'm going to be famous. So it seemed strange that, although he was a highly volatile man prone to manic episodes, whose whole plan was almost scuppered owing to a leaky tap, that he had told no one his plan. The nearest anyone got to the truth was in the casual chats in the cafe with his old pal Maureen Reeves. Friends for ten years, there was no love or longing between them, They were just two like minded people who enjoyed each other's company and regularly chatted over a cup of tea. To Maureen, Tony was charming and smart, with no hint of anger or violence. If anything, he was a gentleman with a big heart and a kind soul. But with no knowledge of his past, she was unaware that, being comfortable in her presence, he was unwittingly laying out his plan. Before her. Being obsessed with the East End serial killer Jack the Ripper, Tony could talk for hours about Jack, about his skills, his methods, his motives, his infamy, and his legend. To some, that hobby may seem a bit odd, but everybody has a pastime, and many have an obsession with true crime. And besides, it distracted him from drinking and getting depressed. Only Tony's plan wasn't without its mistakes. And the biggest wasn't the body in his room, but his neighbour upstairs. On the night that Sally's corpse was discovered in his spare room, sweating and shaking, Tony's arrest wasn't the real reason for his nervousness, but that his plan had stalled before it had even begun. In a moment of uncontrolled mania, in which previously he had slashed his neighbour's tyres, bent her wipers and posted her an abusive note, having attacked her door with spray paint and acid, a key issue concerning his discharge from hospital was the risk that Tony posed to his neighbour and the other residents at Heartland. On the 4th of July 2002, As an inpatient at the Cardigan ward, Tony received a notice of possession informing him of his imminent eviction. Incarcerated and helpless, his model behavior was not only vital to get himself discharged, but also to rally the doctors in his fight to save his flat. When asked, Tony would state, I feel like I've wasted the last few years. Don't get me wrong, the therapy has helped. But with no fixed address, it's impossible to achieve any real goals. To allay their fears, he said of his neighbor, I've no ill feelings towards her. It wasn't her, it was the drink. With the eviction delayed, the doctors stood up for their patient, rightfully declaring, Mr. Hardy's accommodation has caused great concern. There is nothing at present to convince us the detention in a hospital continues to be necessary. he has a natural human right to be treated in the surroundings which encourage and support his own efforts. With his eviction court in a legal dispute, on the 14th of November 2002, Tony returned to his home at Fort Heartland It was a perfect little flat for a prospective serial killer. But his future there was uncertain. Whether the threat of homelessness ignited a fire in his belly is unknown. Whether his hospitalisation caused his bottled-up urges to burst is uncertain. Or whether his urgency was owing to a sick sense of unfinished business, a macabre little anniversary, or was a Christmas gift to himself, no one will ever know. But two innocent women would die in the space of a week, with his third of particular significance. On the 6th of December 2002, from a stall in Camden Market, Tony purchased a set of Mr. Men's socks featuring the grinning yellow face of Mr. Happy. Either this was Christmas shopping or it was premeditation. On the 14th of December at 6.34pm in the Sainsbury's on Camden Road, he bought a large black roll of heavy-duty bin bags, the kind used for house clearances or gardening. Only Tony wasn't moving out and he didn't have a garden. On the 18th of December, he severed his ties with the Alcohol Advisory Service by writing them a Christmas card in which he scrawled, I don't need you anymore. Thanks for all your help. And on the 19th of December, at an unspecified time by Kings Cross Station, he met Elizabeth Selina Vallad. Bludgeoned, strangled, posed, and photographed, as no one had seen, heard, or reported her missing, her murder was as perfect as possible. Being on his best behaviour, there was less chance of the police disturbing his sadistic crimes. And having cunningly evaded a lengthy custodial sentence, Tony was back exactly where he had been 11 months earlier. In the same room, on the same bed, with the same plan. Only this time, unlike with Sally, Liz was his to do with as he pleased, for as long as he pleased. On Friday the 20th of December, the next day, sensing a moment of mania rising inside him, and as before, fearing it could all be ruined by an angry outburst over something as trivial as a leaky tap, Tony went to church. Telling the rector that he was at an emotional rock bottom, the cleric prayed for his immortal soul, and noticed, but never questioned, that around his neck, Tony hung a key, to a locked room in his flat. Later, he returned to the cardigan ward to collect his medication. The mania passed, and as he walked among the Christmas shoppers, he headed home to his tree, his cards and his corpse, all the while mulling over who would be next. But then it didn't matter who she was. What was significant was her number. Bridget Cathy McClellan was born on the 31st of August 1968, as the youngest of five children to Roderick, a civil servant, and their mother, a housewife. Born in the tranquil peace of New Zealand, age five, the family uprooted to the smoggy rain sodden streets of London. Bridget was a flame-haired, pale-skinned, and cheeky-faced young girl who loved to laugh and loved to dance. And being a real beacon of brightness and warmth, she illuminated even the gloomiest of rooms. Only just like her lovely smile, it masked a short life which would be tinged with struggles and sadness. Barely out of her teens, she met a man She fell in love, and together they gave birth to a little baby boy. But with deep frictions in their box fresh relationship, it fell apart, and the father left. In 1992, aged 24, she met a Moroccan painter and decorator called Salil Abdel Amzil. One year later, they married. Two years later, another baby boy was born. But by 1998, the marriage had collapsed and Salil had moved out. Gripped with depression and living on benefits with two boys to raise alone, Bridget struggled. To lift her mood, she was prescribed antidepressants, but when they failed, illicit drugs followed. For a while, she was coping with friends describing her as lovely, great fun, and a really good mum. But infrequent drug use quickly consumed her life, and being addicted to crack, she sold sex to feed her habit. By the winter of 2002, being evicted from her fifth-floor council flat in Camden, hopelessly addicted to crack, and with convictions as a King's Cross sex worker, she had no home, no life, and her two little boys, had been taken into care. The bright, bubbly Bridget had gone, and in her place stood a gaunt yellow shell, all rough and ragged, like a faint ghost with a painted on smile. On the night of Tuesday, the 24th of December 2002, as the world wrapped their presence, Bridget was seen by Kings Cross Station. It was Christmas Eve, but to this sullen, shivering lady, who was 34 but looked nearer 50, it was just another night in need of a fix. With another sex-obsessed stranger, another squalid flat, another 30 quid for an uncomfortable fuck on a grimy bed, and in another doorway, she would cook up those caustic little rocks to forget her sadness and dull her pain but only for a short while. How they met is unknown, but just like the others, no one saw or heard her as she entered For Heartland. Inside Tony's flat, the radiator's warmth must have been reassuring. As was his Santa-like beard, his twinkling tree, and his offerings of mulled wine and a mince pie. In the air hung an overpowering smell of incense, but then again the cinnamon suited this festive theme. The oddly obsessive girl-based art on the walls, the discarded pair of women's grey tracksuit bottoms blocking the base of the locked spare room, and even the putrid whiff of Liz's slowly decomposing body, after five days In a warm flat, couldn't have unsettled Bridget, as there were no screams, no signs of a struggle. And at 8.45pm, a neighbour said they heard the rhythmic sounds of sex. And then, nothing. That night, like a sick and twisted Christmas tree to himself, Tony fulfilled his sadistic fantasy as perhaps with his hefty bulk crushing her tiny chest. At the point of climax, he strangled Bridget to death. Her name meant nothing to him, unlike her number. As being his third victim, Tony had achieved his grisly goal by graduating from the forgettable level of a murderer to the infamous and exclusive ranks of a serial killer. Only with infamy never guaranteed, he knew that his dark ambition was incomplete. On Christmas Day, within the sweaty recesses of his spare room, Tony played in his own little toy box, as on his bed lay two life-size dolls, both naked and spread-eagled. One was a pale-skinned redhead with fuller hips, natural boobs, A ligature mark on her neck and a black NY baseball cap to disguise her reddening and irrelevant face. The other was once an olive skinned beauty with dark short hair, a stunning smile, and an expensive boob job. Only now her mottled legs were topped off with a set of Mr. Men's socks, and her purple bloated head was hidden behind the red rubber of a devil's mask. Bridget and Liz were his to do with as he pleased – to dress, to undress, to kiss, and to violate. And as Boxing Day passed, he posed both ladies with their heads cocked coyly towards him, snapping his camera to capture a sick souvenir to be tugged over later, as the two luscious but anonymous lesbians now looked as if they lured their sexual saviour to bed. But his infamy was yet to be cemented. Wearing a pair of yellow marigolds, Tony dragged their bodies into the small white sparseness of his bathroom. With the cold tap running, he used only what he could find lying around. Three kitchen knives and an old rusty hacksaw, as he severed their limbs at the weakest point the joints. Each cut was clean and unrushed, with no rips, tears or slashes. And as if he was filleting a fish, he took his time, slicing through every ball, socket and vertebrae. So when those neat, orderly pieces of dissected women were stacked together, it was hard to tell which part belonged to who. With two dismembered heads, four feet, four hands, four arms, eight bits of four legs, and two torsos, cleanly cut into halves across the ribcage. In neatly wrapped bundles, Tony placed each part in a black bin bag and sealed it tight with duct tape. On Sunday the 29th of December 2002, in broad daylight, Tony disposed of the lumpy black bin bags in the council's green metal dumpsters for public waste on the corner of Camden Road and Plender Street. Just one street from his flat, an upper torso, a right arm, a left arm and a foot was dropped in amongst the rat-infested mess of food waste and empty bottles. In a similar dumpster, he slung a pair of legs at the back of the College Arms pub, just a few doors down from his home and directly opposite the Mornington unit. Anthony Hardy's dark ambition was finally complete. As with three sex workers dead and their body parts scattered about the London streets. Just like his hero, he was officially a serial killer. But to achieve the true infamy that he desired so much, the next step was beyond his control. And worse still, to get it, he would need to wait. here they've given me a name. They're calling me The Ripper. Within the space of a single year, Anthony John Hardy had murdered his first victim, evaded a lengthy custodial sentence, manipulated his detention in a psychiatric unit, and being declared not a danger to himself or others, he was released back into the community and to his flat at Four Heartland. Six weeks later, two more women would be dead, with their dismembered bodies scattered across Camden. Once he was nothing but an anonymous homeless drunk who was ignored, avoided and abandoned. But now, his dark ambition to become a serial killer was complete. Unlike his eponymous East End hero, whose moniker is known the world over, Tony's infamy was yet to be cemented. He was a nobody who wanted to be a somebody. But to achieve it, the next step was out of his control. So, who was Anthony Hardy? Was he a depressed alcoholic who was prone to manic episodes? Was his mental health real, imaginary? Impossible to diagnose or entirely fabricated to suit his needs? Was he a chancer who grabbed his opportunities? Or a cunning manipulator with a long term goal? Did his addictions make a monster? Did his isolation craft a killer? Or was his sadism always part of his personality? The truth about the Camden Ripper may never be known, even to himself, as he became a different person to different people, at different times. But only by viewing this story from his perspective, is it possible to see the four sides of the personality of Anthony Hardy. The alcoholic, the addict, the sadist, and the maniac. These are the four faces of the Camden Ripper. Part 4. Tony the Maniac Detective Chief Inspector Ken Ball later said, It was one of the most disturbing cases I have ever been involved with. It has always been the belief of the investigating team that a man in full possession of his mental faculties committed these murders. Hardy is a dangerous, devious and manipulative man. In the eyes of the Met Police, Anthony Hardy was a sadistic murderer. Plain and simple. Following the discovery of the naked-imposed body of Sally Rose White, there was enough evidence of assault, premeditation, an attempt to conceal the body, and his convenient loss of memory, owing to an alcoholic blackout, was without merit. But with the murder investigation, usurped by the bungling of a home office pathologist, their case collapsed, and their only suspect was released. But soon enough... The police would be proved right. Mid afternoon, on Thursday the 2nd of January 2003, Tony was sat in an oak panelled smoking room at Great Ormond Street Hospital, a few streets from Kings Cross Station. Sprawled across a stiff wooden bench, wearing his shin length coat, black NY cap, loud shirt, and amusing socks. Tony smoked a ciggy as he perused the paper. His beard was gone, shaved to a ragged stubble. And although it was bitterly cold outside, with a persistently biting drizzle, inside the radiators were reassuringly warm and comforting. One of London's largest ever manhunts was underway. The police were patrolling the streets. His flat was crawling with forensics, and Tony's face was splashed across every tabloid. The papers would state that this mentally disturbed and highly dangerous man had been on the run for three days. When in truth, he wasn't running. He was in no rush at all. As all he had to do now was wait. Seven days earlier, On Friday the 27th of December 2002, Elizabeth Vallad and Bridget McLennan had served their purpose. Their bodies were rotting, flies were swarming, and purge fluid was slowly leaking from their bloated corpses as their internal organs putrefied in the heat of this squalid little flat at Four Heartland. A total of 44. Sickeningly lurid photos were taken of both ladies, posed on the bed, lying naked with all holes gaping as they fulfilled every facet of his sick, disturbing fantasy, only with the redhead Bridget three days dead, and her porcelain skin mottled with a vivid hue of reds and blues, and Liz's one slender frame, malformed by the warmth of decay, into a purple bloated mess with slipping skin. For Tony, it was time to dispose of the evidence. Only this wasn't a race to cut and flush as much human meat as possible. This was slow and methodical for a very specific reason. In an advanced state of decomposition, both bodies were limp and easy to handle as he dragged them from the spare room into the white windowless bathroom With the cold tap on and the plug out, the fluids were slowly drained. The bulk of the Friday he spent dismembering the bodies with a small white hacksaw and three kitchen knives with differing blades. Some sharp for skin, some tough for bone, some jagged for sinew. But no bones were snapped in haste, as each cut was clean, as if performed by a professional butcher. But for Tony, this wasn't only about a sadistic gratification, or the full physical control of a woman. Here, he was creating a myth. There are thousands of serial killers in history. Some are famous, some are forgotten, but very few are infamous. Having left 16 bits of limbs, torsos and heads to drain in the bath, At 8.04 p.m., he re-entered the Sainsbury's on Camden Road to buy more bin bags, where he aroused no suspicion. He didn't disguise his face from the CCTV, and having made his purchase, he even remembered to collect his nectar card points. The next day, with a roll of bin bags, a set of red-handled scissors, and a reel of duct tape, each part was bagged and sealed in his more spacious spare room. He cleaned the bathroom so it was white once again, and then he showered, scrubbed his nails, and popped on some fresh clothes. Conveniently, the bin store at Heartland was in front of his own front door. Only this wasn't about speed, as where and how the bodies were dumped was a key part of his myth-making. At 2.08 p.m., On the corner of Plender Street and Camden Road, Tony dumped a large black bag filled with an upper torso, a right arm, a left arm and a foot into the bin. Having stopped, turned and grinned up towards a CCTV camera directly overhead, and then calmly he walked away. One street down from his home, he slung a second bag bulging with a pair of ladies' On the floor of his spare room, he left Liz's headless and limbless torso, all parcelled up, having locked the door and blocked the gap below with her grey tracksuit bottoms. And then, nearby, he disposed of the rest three feet, two arms, and both heads. On the morning of the 30th of December 2002, with a large police presence at the back of the College Arms pub. He shaved off his beard, packed up a small bag, and calmly he left his flat at Fort Heartland forever. With three women dead, their bodies scattered, and his myth-making finally complete, as his infamy could never be guaranteed, Tony would have to wait, as the final piece of his legend was yet to be written. So, where did the Camden Ripper begin? Well, his homicidal sadism didn't start with Sally Rose White, Elizabeth Selina Vallad, or Bridget Cathy McClellan. It actually began with his first victim his wife. Anthony John Hardy was born on the 31st of May 1951 in Winchill, a coal mining parish east of Burden-on-Trent in Staffordshire, to Kathleen, a housewife, and Cyril, a welder of the Swaddling Coat colliery. As the fourth youngest son, alongside Barry, Terry, Christine and Brian, it's unsurprising that, like most bullies, Tony would unwittingly model himself on those he feared the most, as his father was a large, stout man with a short fuse, a furious temper, and a thirst for drinking women. Raised a Christian, as a boy, the seeds of this serial killer were sown, as Tony was quiet, bright, and charming, but lacked empathy for anyone. From 1956 to 1970, Tony was schooled to Abbott's Bain Grammar in Winchill, where he fostered a love of girls, a passion for mechanics, and a deep desire to flee his working-class roots and although he could be chatty and pleasant to his fellow pupils, he despised his teachers, often dismissing their questions with a vacant look, very few words, and a need to feel superior over these authority figures. Gifted with practical hands and a methodical mind, from 1970 to 73, Tony studied engineering at Imperial College in Kensington, West London, where Tony met and fell in love with 22-year-old Judith Dwight. To Judith, having fallen for a tall, well-built man who was described as a perfect gentleman, in the spring of 1972, they married at Westminster Registry Office. In 1975, they moved to Bury St. Edmunds in Suffolk, where Tony worked as a factory engineer for British Sugar, Judith as a secretary, and their four children... Sam, Ben, Emma and Tom, soon followed. In 1978, with Tony offered a great opportunity, the family uprooted to Hobart in Tasmania. But struggling to cope with the stresses of life, he smoked, he drank, he womanized, and the sadistic seeds of a fledgling serial killer began to spawn. Described as like a Jekyll and Hyde, for Judith, it was like living with two different husbands. As swinging wildly from high manias to low depressions, violent outbursts to utter blankness, Tony's mood was unpredictable. To curb it, he drank heavier, had many affairs, used sex workers, and yet to be diagnosed with onset diabetes. His unruly erections required harder sex to maintain his large libido. Losing his job, for the sake and safety of their marriage and children, Judith got Tony to see a doctor. But as his anger and mania grew, being misdiagnosed, he was incorrectly prescribed with antidepressants. It was then, that being neither drunk, low or elated, Tony would plan and execute his first murder. On the 5th of April 1982, at 6.30 a.m., as the family slept, Tony went to the kitchen and opened the fridge. He wasn't hungry or thirsty, as all he could think about was his wife's impending death. In his eyes, He had planned it to perfection, as with no murder weapon found, he knew that he would evade justice. Having read in a true crime novel about an assassin's dagger made of ice, he adapted the idea and froze a plastic water bottle which had been used as a cooler for picnics. After the attack, the ice would defrost, and the bottle would be indistinguishable from any other piece of rubbish. As he swung the two litre bottle, almost two kilos of hardened ice smashed Judith repeatedly over the head as she slept. It shot intense pains down her body and rendered her stunned and semi conscious. Dragging her limp body to the bath, Tony thrust his wife's head under the water in an attempt to drown her. But as she fought back, she kicked, she punched, and she struggled to yank out the plug. The attack abruptly stopped, when their six-year-old son, Sam, saw his dad attacking his mum, and screamed. Judith was taken to hospital with cuts, bruises and shock, and thankfully, she survived. So whether Tony's failure informed his further attacks is unknown. Did the sound of his neighbour's bath at Heartland trigger a manic flashback? Were his last three victims simply him enacting what he wanted to happen to his wife? And was his manipulation of their bodies an act of revenge because he couldn't obtain hers? That is unknown. But many key elements which shaped the Camden murders would stem from this very moment. Upon his arrest, Tony stated no comment to the police's questions and only spoke to flag up his alcoholic blackouts, his depression and his need for psychiatric help. On the 6th of April 1982, Tony was sectioned at Brisbane's Park Centre Psychiatric Unit. Like his admission to the Mornington Unit, once inside, with the charges dropped, his suicidal urges had ceased and as a model patient, he was declared not a danger to others or himself, and discharged after just 10 days. But as would later happen at the Cardigan ward, he wasn't diagnosed with depression or bipolar, but suffering from a cyclothmic reaction, meaning his violent moods weren't owing to a mental illness, but were part of his personality. Two weeks later, Tony held his wife hostage in a hotel room. She later filed divorce papers and moved back to England. And although a decree nisi was later served, his violence towards his soon-to-be ex-wife didn't stop there. In August 1985, as they still lived together owing to their dwindling finances, Tony tortured Judith with his petty torments. He soaked her bed with water, he broke her secretarial typewriter, he stole all of the money in her purse, and for the last three days, before she finally left their matrimonial home, he turned up the radio full so she couldn't sleep. In November 1986, on the grounds of domestic assault, the divorce was issued and a restraining order was put in place Meaning that Tony couldn't contact his wife or children in any way. He broke those terms, served two months in prison, and losing his job, he focused his time on making her life a living hell. 8th of December 1986. He harassed Judith with phone calls day and night. 11th of December. While the police were installing alarms in her home, They found microphones hidden in the vents. 14th of December, he made more abusive calls. 2nd of January 1987, he followed his wife's car all the way to London. 12th of January, within five hours of changing her ex-directory number, there were more menacing calls. 19th of January, she got a postcard which read, Is there there a chink in your armour, I wonder, Tony? 27th of January, he slashed her friend's car's tires. 28th of January, he left a voicemail saying, if you persist in refusing to talk to me, you'll be sorry. 8th of June, he bricked her window and slashed her tires. 9th of July, he broke into her home at night, leaving a cigarette stub and her tires slashed. 13th of July, another window bricked and a note attached stating, This brick was chosen with care. I hope you like it. T. The same day, five cars on the street had their tyres slashed, and she received another note stating, To the stars or to hell, the choice is yours. And on the 21st of July 1987, he broke into her home, boarded up the garage, jammed the front door, stole her friend's car, Changed the number plates and used it for a spot of illegal minicabbing and to harass and stalk his ex wife as she tried to live her life. On the 16th of September 1987, he was sentenced to one year in prison for contempt of court having ignored the restraining order. While on remand in Norwich Prison for car theft, a psychiatrist for the Norwich Clinic assessed Tony. And found no evidence of major mental illness, and that his violence towards his ex wife resulted from an intractable personality trait. Meaning, he wasn't mentally ill, this was part of who he was. Having served his sentence, on the 2nd of January 1989, he stole the car of his ex wife's boyfriend, and while high on alcohol and cannabis, He organised a belated New Year's Eve party for a group of sex workers, which ended in a high-speed police chase down the A134 and crashed into a roadblock at Thetford. Upon his arrest, he refused to give a specimen, repeatedly stated, no comment. He caused criminal damage to his cell and was sentenced to a further six months in prison. Hello, my name is Tony, and I'm an alcoholic. And this was where we began. In the summer of 1989, as Tony drove his battered Ford Sierra through the back streets of King's Cross. Within a year, he was unemployed, homeless, and diabetic. Over the next 13 years, He was arrested, evicted, and sectioned on countless occasions. And having nothing of his own, he had learned to manipulate the system to get exactly what he wanted. Whether a bed, a meal, an income, a flat, or the freedom to walk the streets, having got away with murder. With three women dead, their bodies scattered, and his myth-making finally complete, as his infamy could never be guaranteed, Tony would have to wait as the final piece of his legend was yet to be written. On Monday the 30th of December 2002, just shy of 3am, as the urban foxes prowled behind the College Arms pub, hungry and shunned, seen as vermin by an uncaring society, another nameless scavenger foraged in the council bins for food. Only what this young Irishman found shocked him to the core. He later said, I thought there were two big fish, like two big salmon. I opened the bag and there they were, a pair of women's legs. The press would later claim that Tony was only caught because the rubbish collection was a day late. But as anyone who lives in Britain knows, every Christmas, it's late. This discovery wasn't a mistake. It was deliberate. As how could Tony become an infamous serial killer if no one knew about his killings? At 9am, the homeless man carried the reeking bin bag to the Hospital for Tropical Diseases on Kappa Street. At 9.45am, Detective Chief Inspector Ken Ball was alerted to reports of suspected human remains. At 10am, the rear of the pub was sealed off and seeing the commotion from the comfort of his own flat, Tony calmly packed a bag, grabbed his pills, shaved off his beard and left Heartland forever. There was no rush, no panic, no fear. And knowing that his moment had almost come, he probably even stopped to watch. At 11am at St Pancras Mortuary, an autopsy by Dr Freddy Patel confirmed their worst fears. The legs were human, female, recently dismembered, and more than likely they belonged to more than one woman. a murder investigation was set up. The estate was cordoned off, bins were emptied, residents were questioned, and rubbish collections were stopped, although thousands of tons had already been taken to landfill. No other body parts were initially found, but when the neighbours were asked, the same name kept cropping up. When the police arrived, it was as if he had been expecting them, as the front door was open and the hall light was on. But Tony was nowhere to be found. Initially, it looked like a false lead, as although clean but cluttered, it resembled the flat of a depressed alcoholic who was blamed for everything. To experienced detectives, these seemingly innocent items rankled their nerves. Like the rubber devil's mask, the occult symbols... The stack of sickening porn, the creepy childish daubings which hinted towards other victims, a scattering of scrawled letters written to sex workers, escorts, and SM magazines, all alluding to his depraved cravings, and a painted glass jar immortalizing that first murder of Sally Rose White. But most of all, beyond the bleach and the incense, they were hit with the recognizable and unforgettable festering reek of decaying flesh. So pungent, it permeated the grey tracksuit bottoms which blocked the gap under the door and lingered in their nostrils. Having forced the door, the spare room was as Tony had left it a treasure trove of irrefutable evidence connecting him to the murder to the victim. On the table were spare bin bags, a roll of duct tape, some scissors, a pair of marigold gloves, and carefully positioned on the red rug, neatly wrapped and sealed, with the tools of her dissection placed on top, lay the headless and limbless torso of Elizabeth Vallad. The hacksaw held jagged nicks of flesh, the knives were still blood-stained, Luminol confirmed the areas of death, dismemberment and disposal, and the only fingerprints found were the victims and Tonys. The next day, the search expanded to the canal, landfill and the neighbouring estate, where in a green council bin on Plender Street, an upper torso, a right arm, a left arm and a foot was found. Bridget McClellan was identified by her DNA, and Elizabeth Vallad by the serial numbers of her breast implants. And although an extensive search was conducted, the hands and heads remained missing. Tony was the police's prime suspect. With one of London's largest manhunts set up, the newspapers were given his photo and description and knowing his reliance on medication for his depression and diabetes, some pancreas and St Luke's hospitals were alerted, but they had already missed him. Tony was gone. Having lived for a decade as an invisible vagrant on London streets, it wasn't difficult for him to vanish without trace. He slept rough, ate hot meals in charity-run kitchens, and having shaved off his beard, Less to evade the police and more to avoid a public lynching, his days were spent reading the trashy tabloids, who slathered over the grisly details of his murders, dubbing him with a series of lurid, salacious nicknames, whether as the King's Cross Killer, the Camden Slasher, or the Bin Bag Maniac. Tony knew that his moment of infamy was soon, very soon. But until then, he would wait. In the mid afternoon of Thursday, the 2nd of January 2003, Mike Burroughs, an off duty policeman, was sitting with his son in the wood paneled smoking room at Great Ormond Street Hospital. When he spotted a large, stout man in a shin length coat, a black NY cap, a loud shirt, and a set of amusing socks. ...smoking a cigarette and reading the newspaper. To his son, Mike whispered... ...you see him? Doesn't that look like the bin bag man? And that was it. Security was alerted. The police arrived. And upon his arrest, although many articles falsely claimed that he fought his way out... ...with one constable losing an eye and another stabbed... In truth, he was calm and polite. The wait was over. The moment had come, and as the officers led him away, Tony grinned and said, I hear they've given me a name. They're calling me the Ripper. (music) Taken to Colindale Police Station, and questioned by D.S. Alan Bostock and DCI Ken Ball, their evidence against him was irrefutable, but their focus was more humane. When the DCI asked, I want to recover the heads, not for me, for the families, what can you do do for me, Tony? Being a sadist, with a hatred of authority and a need to furnish his myth, as he did with every question, Tony replied, no comment. On Tuesday, the 25th of November, 2003, at the Old Bailey, 52-year-old Anthony John Hardy pleaded guilty to the brutal murders of Sally Rose White, Elizabeth Selina Vallad, and Bridget Cathy McClellan, and was sentenced to three life sentences. In May 2010, this was extended to a whole life tariff. No one knows why he pleaded guilty. It's unlikely he did it to spare the families the agony of hearing the evidence. More likely is that with an insatiable press perched in the gallery, he knew that the little they heard, the moral mystique would surround this infamous British serial killer known as the Camden Ripper. Very little was written about this case, and although the supposedly accidental death of Sally Rose White was overruled, and the pathologist Dr. Freddie Patel was dismissed, the most conclusive public review of this case was into the treatment of Anthony Hardy as a mental health patient under the care of Camden Council. Held at Broadmoor psychiatric prison, and later transferred to HMP Franklin. He sought a biographer to write his story. He asked Christie's to auction off his macabre souvenirs, and he even requested that his clothes should be sent to Madame Tussauds so his effigy could stand in the Chamber of Horrors next to Dr. Crippen and Vetch Christie. On the 26th of November 2020, Anthony John Hardy died of sepsis in prison. His face is hardly known. His crimes are rarely discussed. There are very few biographies in his name, And having died just two weeks earlier, his demise was usurped by a vastly more infamous serial killer, the Yorkshire Ripper. So, as much as he craved infamy, dead or alive, the Camden Ripper has almost been forgotten.